Amen and amen. God bless you guys. And good morning. We have come as far, Matthew 25, if you'll turn there in your Bibles. We had quickly went over the uh, ten, the parable of the ten virgins in verses 1 through 13. I want to pick up our reading, verse 14, but... Um, we will, I, there's a few things that I want to talk about as far as the parable of the uh, ten virgins. I had a lot of questions last week are about it, emails and um, calls and about the whole thing, about the virgins, who are they? And, uh, and then I realized, if they're going back listening to the teachings, how quick I went through it. But let's pick up our reading at verse 14, and uh, it looks like we, Rich, Rich got me up here in a, a great time, so we should be able to finish this. Um, verse 14, it says, The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country who called his own servants and delivered unto them his goods. Unto one he gave five talents, unto another two, and unto another one. To every man according to his several ability. And straightway he took his journey. Then he that had received the five talents went. He traded with the same and made them five uh, or another five talents. And likewise he that had received two, he also gained another two. But he that received one went, he digged a hole or digged in the earth. And hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants cometh and reckoneth with them. And so he that had received the five talents came and brought another five talents, saying, Lord, thou deliverest unto me five talents. Behold, I have gained beside them five more talents, or five talents more. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things, and I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of the Lord. He also that had received the two talents came and said, Lord, thou deliverest unto me two talents. Behold, I have gained two other talents beside them. And his Lord said unto him, Well done, good and faithful servant. Thou hast been faithful over a few things. I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of, of thy Lord. He that had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew thee that thou art a hard man, reaping where thou hast not sown, gathering where thou hast not strawned. And I, I was afraid, and I went, and I hid thy talents in the earth. Lo, here thou hast thine, that is thine, and the Lord answered, and said unto him, Thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I, I reap where I have sown not, and gathered where I have not strawn. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then at my coming I would have received my own with usury or with interest. Take therefore the talent from him, and give it unto him that hath ten talents. For unto everyone that hath 
shall be given, and he shall have abundance. But from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. And cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now let's just read this other parable quickly. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory, and before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye, blessed of my father, entered the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. When I was hungry, you gave me meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous, the one on the right, answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we uh, the hungered, and fed thee, and thirsty, and gave thee drink? When saw we um, the stranger, and took thee in, naked, and clothed thee? And when did we see you sick, and in prison, and came to you? Well, the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, insomuch as you have done it unto the one of the least of these, my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them that are on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For when I was hungry, you gave me no meat. When I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you took me not in. I was naked, and you clothed me not. I was sick in prison. You didn't come and visit me. Then shall they also answer him, saying, Lord, when saw we thee a hunger, or thirst, or stranger, or naked, or sick in prison, and did not minister unto thee? Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Insomuch as you did it not to the one of the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Would you be kind enough to stand with me and so we can pray over this? God bless you. Father, we thank you for your word and for these parables, parables, warning parables. But nonetheless, it gives us a glimpse into the future and what's about to come and What's going to happen during the tribulation period in the millennial? Lord, again, I just pray for anyone here this morning that might just be weighed down with the cares of this life or just distracted. I pray, Father, for just this moment or so, you would give them ears to hear and and hearts to receive. Anoint your word, we pray. Set it apart to make us more like you. Maybe to help chisel away some of the works of the flesh. Whatever, Lord. Just use your word this morning. We love you. We praise you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said together, amen, amen. Thanks. Again, I don't want to belabor too much of the the first parable we went over last week. Um, Before we do, one of the questions was asked last week and um, 
someone said, is there order to it? And is the order uh, of these parables correct? We have, of course, the parable of the ten virgins. Uh, we have the, the parable, again, um, of the man that traveled into a far country, the parable of the talents. And then we got this other parable at the end, the parable about the, the goats and the, and the sheep. Now, um, I think this is eye-opener for a lot of people, especially if, if you're a student of the Scripture and you want to properly interpret these parables. Now, remember, folks, a parable is just an earthly story thrown alongside of a spiritual truth. And Jesus was great at that. He taught many times in parables. Um, For the ears that were hearing, so he would tell stories and give them sort of like mine eye pictures, you know, things. These stories they would understand. They totally understood this parable of the ten virgins because it is a Jewish wedding. It's Jewish through and through. It's Jewish ideology and Jewish customs. It's how they had weddings and on all. The Gentiles would have heard this. They would have said it doesn't make any sense. If you and I were sitting there for the first time listening to this parable, we would have said they were engaged how long? The betrothal period was how long? We would not understand it either. And so, that, that, see, here's the way I think we can keep this. In order, in First Corinthians, and I'll read this to you. Paul the apostle, again talking to the the, the church there in Corinth, dealing with um, the conscience of certain people. For the Jews, they they shouldn't need anything that might um, uh, it might go against their conscience. Same thing uh, if you're among Gentiles, you got to be careful with the Gentiles. But here in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse. 32 it says give none offense neither to the jews nor to the gentiles and and nor to the church of of god and so the way god looks at humanity the way god sees it he sees three groups of people he sees jews he sees gentiles and he sees the church now, of course, he sees different races and different ideologies and theologies and all. But when it comes to humanity, God looks down from heaven and he sees three groups. Again, he sees the Jews, which, by the way, are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That is a Jew to God. Now, some of these Christians like to go around because they're messianic in thought and interest in all that. They call themselves messianic Jews. They're not messianic Jews. They're Gentiles who like Jewish things. Okay, you with me so far? He then looks at Gentiles, and Gentiles, they're everyone that's not a Jew. So if that's you, you're just, you're a Gentile. But then the church is added to this list. Who, what is, and who is, and what is the church? Well, that can combine of Jews and Gentiles. It's a new entity. It's something that God from heaven, from eternity, developed, and it's called his church. It's also called the, the ecclesia, you know. It's also called the bride. It's called the apple of his eye. It's called the sons and daughters of the Most High. You, guys, if you're born again, I don't care if you're a born-again Jew. I don't care if you're a born-again Jew. If you're born again, you are the church, which is the bride. You're not the virgins. 
See, I believe that the first parable, when it comes to the ten virgins, he's not talking about the church at all. He's talking about Jews. When we go into the next parable, which again is the parable of the talents, I think he's talking about the church there. And again, there's all kind, there's different opinions. Nothing that would be heretic, uh, like heretics or, you know, that it's heresy. Just kind of different viewpoints. But I think he's talking about, I think he's talking about the church. Then he, when he starts to talk about these goats and these sheeps, and there's going to be a judgment of those, I think he's talking about the Gentile nations. So, with all that said, I hope whoever wrote that question to me, they kind of, yes, there is an order. And I think it's important. Because then if you understand that the ten virgins is just dealing with the Jews and that the talents is dealing with the church and that the goats and sheep are the nations, then you've got a better grasp on how to apply these things, these parables to your life. Again, it's a Jewish ideology. There was an engagement. There's a betrothal pyramid. And then there's actually the wedding feast. I went over this last week kind of quickly. But just to recap a little bit, you know, there's the engagement that goes all the way back pre-arrangement. This is where two dads are sitting at the local deli and they're having some falafels. And they decide that, they, hey, your boy would be good, good for my girl. They're like maybe five years old, you know. And, uh, and so they, they have this. That is an engagement in Jewish mind and in minds. And then in the betrothalment, some right, maybe a year, maybe two years before the actual ceremony, they go into a period called the betrothalment. Now, the betrothalment is where they actually exchange vows. There's the vows between the parents. There's vows between the two kids. It, it, there's, there's actually a contract. It is legally binding, and he and she becomes his bride. That's why in the Bible, if the guy dies, she is called a widow who is a virgin. She's never consummated her marriage. She's never had a relationship with him. But it's legally binding, and she is actually... Uh, his wife. See, that was the problem with Mary. See, Mary was in that stage of betrothalment. She, she now from a, a miracle from heaven, she becomes pregnant of the Holy Spirit. She's found with child. She's in that pyramid, in that period of betrothalment. That's why Joseph said, Oh my goodness, I've got to put her away privately, secretly, because according to Jewish law, she should be stoned to death because she's legally married. Get it? And so what are these ten called in this, in this parable? Virgins. Not his bride. So we're dealing with something a little different here. Again, the wedding feast would kind of look like this. You know, the bride would say, hey, you know, no, actually, I love it. Dad would look at the son making the house or a dwelling place on the back of his house. The father says, okay, son, it looks like it's done. Now go get your bride. Remember what Jesus said about the rapture of the church? Hey, only the father knows when to send the son. Only the father has it in his own um, knowledge of when the son. So the father will send the son. See, the father's going to send Jesus to call his bride home, not virgin's home. And so he goes and he goes to the courtyard of where the bride and the bride's maids are. How many? Who are the virgins? They're the bridesmaids. And there's the guys out there and he's got his buddies with him, the best men. They've got torches and there's horns blasting. You know, you know. 
Come on, honey. It's time, you know, it's time for the third phase, and that is the wedding. And the wedding lasts how many days? Seven days. This marriage supper of the Lamb is going to last seven years. Do you see, this? Do you see the imagery here? And so the wife comes out with her bridesmaids. Some of them look like they're still wiping the sleep out of their eyes. They've been slumbering. The other's been ready. Five of them, man, their torches are blazing. The other torches are out. They're not blazing. Why? Hey, why isn't your lamp lit? Well, we ran out of oil. Give us some. No, I ain't giving you any. There's selfish virtue. I'm not giving you any. You know, we might not have enough for our own. Again, this is just a story, gang. Don't try to make doctrine, you know, for each part or every verse. So they make their way through the, through the, they take the longest parade route, you know. And it's at midnight, meaning it's unexpected. It's an un- unlikely hour for this to take place. So too is the rapture of the church. We really don't know when it's going to happen, but we know it will happen. For many of the virgins that will be alive during the millennium, pardon me, during the seven years, it is going to come upon them, the second coming, unlikely as well. So what's the lesson? Be ready, right? Be responsible, you know. Be prepared. Boy Scouts, that's, I think, the slogan. Be prepared. And... um, but anyway, you can, now you see what the, 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 the parable of the ten virgins literally um, kind of ind- indicates there. No, so the ten virgins are the bridesmaids. Now, they will go through the, the meaning of it, the interpretation of it. They will go through the tribulation. Jews will go through the tribulation. Um, there will be a, a great an, um, anti-Semitism. There will be, and we'll deal with this on the parable of the goats and the sheep as well. But um, there will be a, an awareness among the Jewish people for a short period of time, like we are definitely experiencing the judgment of God. And some of them will c- continue to be ready, the five um, wise, but others, other Jews, will begin to slumber off, become lethargic, become like, you know, let's just follow this guy who has all the answers, meaning the Antichrist. And when judgment does come, um, five will be fo- wise and will enter into the millennial, and five will, that were foolish will not, and will have to face a judgment. So hopefully for you guys that were a little confused last week, that kind of straightens it out a little bit for you. Um, now, heading into this, the, the next um, parable here called the parable of the talents. Verse 14 says, the kingdom of heaven is going to be like a man traveling, traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Again, verse 14. And, uh, and to one he gave five talents, to another he gave um, two talents, and to another uh, one. And, and again... To each according to his own ability. So the one who had one, the owner would never have expected him to produce ten. Like the one who had five. You get me? And, and that's important for you to see that. He gave five to one. He gave, cause, well, well, I know you can handle five. I gave you three to another, or to another, two to another, one to another, according to their ability. Now it's important that you see that. Because there's been so many times that this 
this verse or these, this parable has been used by preachers and by teachers to really send a message of condemnation. You know, and I'll deal with that in a second. Um, but a, a, what is a talent? Um, he's not talking about capabilities or abilities. He's not talking about the guy who can pick up a guitar and he has the ability to play it. Or someone who might be, have the ability to do... You know, it, it, literally, it's a weight of measure. Actually, a talent back in biblical days was equivalent to roughly around, whether it's gold or silver, but it would be worth about 20 years of wages. 20 years of wages. That's quite a bit of money. And, um, but he knew that the first guy was able to handle the 10 because of his ability. Well, then it goes on, but verse 16, it says, Then he who had received the five went and traded them and made five more. He's a good business guy. And likewise, he who had received the two, he gains two more. And, but, the, but the one who had received one, notice verse 18, uh, he digs a hole in the ground, and he hid his Lord's money. And then it goes on, it says, And after a long time, um, those servants came um, and to settle the account. Now, notice that the, 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 one, the owner, the, the master, he went away. Into, what a picture of Jesus going away, giving his church, giving his sons and daughters, you and I, talents. Here's five talents. Again, it says, for a long time, the Lord of the servant came to settle the account. It's a picture of the Bema seat of Christ. Did you know, folks, each and every one of us are going to give an account for something? Now, let me say this. Again, this parable is not to bring a message of condemnation. No, no. When God judges, called the Bema seat of Christ, when he judges you and I, what he's going to ask, it's going to kind of go like this. And I'll just use myself as an example. Howard gave you the, the gift of pastor, teacher. Uh, Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You know, Lord, I invested. You gave me five and I gained five more. Here's ten. Or maybe, Lord, that's the only thing I had was just that, one. But guess what? I gained one more. You know, and I want you to notice the response. It says, so he that had received the uh, five talents um, and and brought five other talents, the Lord Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents. And the Lord said, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Um, he says, uh, you were faithful over a few things. I will make you rulers over many. Enter into the joy. Enter into the joy. What's he talking about? When, when, when they enter into the millennial reign, he'll have ten, not just five, for his joy. Enter into the joy. Listen, I'll read this. It's, it was a quote that I picked up. Um, last night as I was reading, it says, your, your, your capacity of having joy in the kingdom will be directly related to your faithfulness and service. Let me read that again. Your, your capacity of having joy, that we saw in the latter part of verse 21, um, in the kingdom will be directly related to, the, to your faithfulness in service. And I had to stop and think about that. You know, sometimes we think we just, we enter into heaven and everybody is just, it's all going to be, I don't know if it's all going to be the same. The experience of the kingdom is all going to be the the same. And I thought, well, wait a minute. 
There was the one guy out of five. He was so faithful, he gained five more. He says, well done, you've been faithful with those five. Here's five more. Enter into the joy. And then he goes a little further and he says, the guy who had received two talents, Lord, you delivered me two talents, I have gained two more talents beside them. And notice that again, it says, well done, thou good and faithful servant, you have been uh, faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy. It's the same phrase, other than just two turned out to be four, but enter in. He doesn't say, wow, man, couldn't you have done, you know, couldn't you have done a little better like, you know, the first guy? I know you only had two, but I mean, how much work would have taken? Couldn't you have just done a little bit more, added a little bit? You could have experienced a lot more joy in the kingdom if you had only done. But he doesn't say that. No, he says, no, you, you're going to be judged on your faithfulness at the beam of seed of Christ. Not how many talents you've made. Just to be faithful with it. And then, verse 24, and this is where I really need you to pay attention. He says, then he who had received one talent came and he said, Lord, I knew you. I knew you to be a hard man. Reaping where you have not sown and gather where you have not scattered seed. What is he saying to this, this owner? Is he saying, hey, I, 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 know, I know you're hard. You take what doesn't really belong to you. You're gathering where you haven't sown. You're just austere. You're just hard. Now, see, this tells me that the one who, who had one talent really didn't know his master. You know, for those who view Christ to be hard or, or, or austere, uh, br- brutal, just hard, they don't know him. And that's exactly what the teaching of legalism does. You, 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 the legalist will teach, you know, he's hard. You better toe the line. You better stay in step. And if you don't, then that person says, you know what? Whatever I do have, I better just, I better not pay, play my cards. I better just lay back. And you see, Jesus isn't hard. Jesus isn't rash. He's not condemning. Jesus said, you know, learn of me. I'm meek. I'm lowly. Take my yoke. It's light. It's easy. My burden is light. Nowhere in the Bible do you find when it comes to his bride, his church, where we have to be afraid of him. In the book of Revelations, there are those who try to teach that the people who are running and hiding from God is the church. Where they're literally saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. That's not the church. Nowhere does God want you to be afraid of him. The word to fear the Lord thy God is not phobia. It's not to dread him, to respect him, to understand his attributes. Yeah. What does this guy do? He digs a hole in the dirt. He buries what has been given to him. Now, whether you want to say he's a Christian or not in this parable, that's up to you. And, I, and, and for a long time, I thought, okay, this is a Christian who was given by God's grace a talent for his church, for the bride. But he didn't view God correctly, so therefore, he just buried his talent. 
But now I'm thinking, wow, could it be this is a believer? Or maybe he's not a believer. See, again, there's a problem when we try to make doctrines out of parables because I think what the Lord really wants to drive home, what the idea is here, if you've been given a talent, are you using it to further his kingdom? And are you being faithful with that talent? I don't think it's a heaven or hell issue, though at the end of the parable, somebody's being cast into the lake of fire and being judged. Listen, who is this this Christian with one talent. Sometimes I think it's the guy, oh, I only have one. You know, that guy over there, he can do five things. You know, I, I can't play guitar. You know, I can't even pick my nose right. <laughs> you know, I, so you know what? I, I'm not going to bother anybody. I'm, I'm just going to dig a heart. And what I think God has given me, really, he doesn't want to use that. He doesn't. No, let me tell you something, church. We need all the one-talented people we got, you know, and to use it. And to further his kingdom, you know. For, what can't you, every one of you has something that you can add to the, to the bride of Christ. What are we doing with it? How are we investing the talents? Some of you say, there's a lot of talented people around here. Juan is one of the most talented persons I know. That guy is all over the map doing stuff. I'm just trying to study to give you a good, decent Bible study. Jerry's the same way. And it seems, you know, you know what it seems like? It seems like the more you have, the less you're recognized. But the one who has the one, everybody seems to notice. A good friend of mine just recently last year went home to be with the Lord. And his talent was to be here every morning, every Sunday morning. And he had this crazy little battery-operated vacuum. And he would vacuum this center. He would go up and if there was any dirt on the foot, he'd vacuum upstairs a little bit. His talent, every Sunday morning he would go into the nursery and sit there before you guys, an hour before, and pray for this service. And I noticed him every week doing that. One talent. How many, guys, how, how many of you guys can change a diaper? Raise your hand. See, you don't want to, do you? Because you want to bury that talent in a hole. <laughs> how many of us can pick up a piece of paper, clean, you know, clean a bathroom? See, we all can do something, but we think, well, I'm not that important. I only have one talent. My, my buddy Eric makes a mean cup of coffee. That's his talent, man. Every, every time we get together, I have a mean cup of coffee. I'm just making light, but I see this. Yes, there are going to be people in the body of Christ that can say, yeah, I, I have, God has invested in my life so much, and I'm not going to bury the five. I'm not going to bury the two. But how about you that have just one? Are you burying the one? And you're not being used at all? Okay, Harry. Well, then you're going to have to explain about, you know, taking that gift and casting that unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. Well, I'm not sure if I have all the answers to this this parable. But if it's a Christian, um, 
Thayer and Weiss, these, these Greek scholars, they do kind of an interesting thing. It says, cast that unprofitable servant into. That word into literally means bring him toward, but not all the way. And when I read that, I thought, well, that's interesting. You, you take this guy, you cast him out, bring him towards, but not all the way. And uh, could it be that the, the one prophet, the, the one who thought, uh, he, you're too mean, mean I be, will he show him um, what's happening to people because he didn't invest the one talent? I don't, I don't know, and I don't mean to make people feel condemned. But the Bible does say there's tears in heaven. Is it then Jesus comes and wipes the tears from people's eyes because he's seeing people being cast into that outer darkness when he thought, oh, if I just invested my one talent or if I invested my three talents, maybe if I invested my five. Again, it's something for us to ponder and pray about, you know. We're, you know, I, today I believe you're either sold out for the world or you're sold out for the kingdom of God. I think right now it's either hot or cold, no lukewarmness. Either you're living for Jesus or you're living for the world. I'm not saying you're saved or not saved, but I'm just trying to challenge you. What are you living for? I, and I know men that live for their job. That's all they talk about. That's all they, and there's, and, and, and maybe they have so much they can offer the church. I know gals that get so offended and it's so about them and that they get so offended they don't invest their talents into the body of Christ to see people come to Jesus. Can I challenge all of us? Hey, let's, let's be sold out for Jesus. Let's be sold out for the kingdom of God. I believe we're about ready to hear the trump, the rapture. I believe we're going to be ushered into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I, and I want to hear the, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We're going into the millennium. And because you have sown five and gained ten, the joy of the Lord, you're going to be so blessed. But for those who just decided to think that God's a mean person and I'm just glad I'm saved but I'm not going to I'm not going to lift one finger to further his kingdom I think I think it's um, a warning I do for all of us you know what I love about this parable also is they all had gifts right but they differ from one another I think every one of you are uniquely crafted by God some of you, I just laugh when I see how God is using you. I think it tickles me. <laughs> Look at this. I would have never thought, you know. Did you know everything that God wants you to do for him, whether it's the five or the three or the two or the one, has been preordained before the foundations of the world that you are to walk in them? So don't bury them. Use your gifts. Use your callings. For the, for the purpose of the kingdom. Give me a fat amen, church. Amen. Then we come into this third parable. Where he says in verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. All his holy angels are with him. 
And then he will sit on his throne of his glory. So again, just going back to our eschatology and our studies of Christ in the end days, uh, remember the prophetic model that we have. We have the dispensation that you and I are living in now. We call this the church age. This is where we where we get to embrace grace and love and you know, his burden is easy, his yoke is light, that kind of thing. You know, come to me if you're weary, heavy laden. If you're thirsty, come to me. I'll give you a drink. Un- unmerited, unearned, and undeserved favor. That's the dispensation we live in. You should thoroughly be enjoying. He's not mean. He's not angry. He's not ready to whip you. But then after that dispensation is over, then we call it the rapture of the church. We're ushered into another period of time known as the seven years of tribulations. Jesus comes back again, touches the Mount of Olives, ushers us into another dispensation called the millennial reign. There's the, 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 the last major battle we will see at the end of the millennium. It will usher us into the eternal, if you want to call that a dispensation, but new heaven and new earth. So there's your model, right? So what he's talking about here, when he comes into his glory, he's talking about into the millennium. When he comes into the millennium with his angels, he's going to take up his throne. It will be in Jerusalem. It will be after a major battle again. And uh, this is where the nations are gathered in verse 32. Um, Scholars say it will be in the valley of Jehoshaphat. Others have said somewhere else. But he's going to gather the nations. Who are the nations? These are the nations that exist during the seven years of tribulation. You know, and what, what's really going... Well, let me go through the parable and then I'll make sense of, of all this. Uh, he's separating one from another, you know... Uh, he uh, shepherd divides the sheep and the goats. He he will set the sheep up on his right hand, the goats on the left. Uh, again, talking about the Gentile nations, and then the king will say to those on his right hand, "Come, blessed of my father, uh, inherit the kingdom prepared for you and from the foundations of the world. For when I was hungry, you gave me food; when I was thirsty, you gave me drink; when I was hungry." I'm sorry, when I was a stranger, you took me in. When I was naked, you clothed me sick and visited me. When I was in prison, you came to me. Now, again, so many people have taken this out of context. And I have to confess to you, I have used this. Trying to make a point, uh, maybe a biblical point, but nonetheless taking it out of context. What he is not saying here is, if you're a Christian... And you're not, you know, visiting, you know, those that are in prison or going and seeing those who are sick. Or if you see an orphan child or if you see some star, somebody star, or if you're going by somebody and they're holding up a sign, you know, we'll work for some money, work for some money, whatever. And you go by them all of a sudden, you just feel so condemned because you're thinking, oh, I just went by somebody. You know, you know, just, just my point of view. Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat. And so if you want to help people, you know, help them find a job. But anyway, sorry, I just, but um, we are to be um, sensitive. We are to, you know, if if you do see somebody and somebody needs that aid, then um, just know that it's the Lord telling you to do it. You know, you think of Peter and Paul when, when they're going into the temple and they go through the gate beautifully. They see this man begging. And what is it? They, he said, silver and gold we don't have, but what we give to you. What you really need, 
you need God to heal you. Now, here's the funny thing. If you study early church, Paul and Peter just had a collect. They had money. They said, but that's not what you need. That's not going to help you. But there are people who will use that. Oh, I'm going off into a third world country. I'm going to be doing this and doing that. And if you don't help us, if you don't provide for us, you know, and all of a sudden you're feeling condemned. No, no, no. When you give whatever needs there, you do it because you've been directed by the Spirit of God to do it. Not because somebody laid a trip on you and they used this this parable um, to bring that message. And it's out of context. Um, but I've heard it, even during the Jesus People movement. At first, it was all about grace and love and just loving everybody. And let's just. And then, as the time went on towards the mid 70s and the latter part of the 70s, you, you had people condemning you. If you had 10 bucks in your pocket, you better go out and give five bucks to somebody that's starving, or you're condemned. That's not what the parable is teaching at all. It's just falsely demonstrating that salvation comes by works. And it's not, is it, gang? But in verse 37, it says that then the righteous will answer, say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and and feed you and thirsty and give you a drink? And he says, okay, a stranger take you in, drop down to verse 40. He says, and the king will answer and say to them, surely I say to you, and so much as you've done it to the least of these. And here, this, this is who the least is, my brethren. You've did it to me. Now, I, the, to understand this parable, we have to identify who? The brother. Who, who, the brethren. Who, who's he talking about? Now, in the Bible, Jesus relates or alludes to his brother in three, three, three areas. First area that we see, um, of course, is his biological brothers. And I believe that's in uh, Matthew chapter 13, where his brothers came to him. James was his half-brother. He had other half-brothers and sisters. So, of course, he was my brother, my family. But then he would turn around and say, who is my brother? Who is my family? Right? But then another place is in Hebrews chapter 2, where it says that he walked in the midst of the brethren. And so he calls his church the brethren, you know. But we know it's not his biological brothers in this parable. We know it's not the church. The church has been raptured by that time. So who is he referring to? Now, just for you note takers, Deuteronomy. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 17 around verse 14, it comes right out and says, as far as the nation of Israel picking a king, that king had to come from among the brethren, the Jews. So again, the, the, who he's referring to, hey, when I was thirsty, did you give me something to drink? When I was hungry, did you give me something to eat? When I was in prison, did you come, did you come visit me? He's talking about the Jews that are living during the tribulation. You see, gang, there will be nations that survive that will be in that last seven-year period. And there will be those nations who will, listen up, who will come to the aid of the Jewish people that are under severe persecution. The latter part of that seven-year period, the 1,260 days known as the time of Jacob's trouble, these Jews are going to be so persecuted by the Antichrist, but there will be nations. Who are they? How will America? I don't know. I don't know if it's America. I don't know if it's Europe waking up saying we've got to come to the aid of, of the brethren over there, the Jewish people. 
we have to come to their aid. Even if it means we're going to lose some of our own people, we're going to come to their aid. And again, gang, the sheep will be those nations who come to the aid of the Jewish people during the seven years of tribulation. Those who turn a cold shoulder, you know, and allow the Antichrist. Listen, according to Zechariah, yeah, Zechariah, um, two-thirds of the Jewish population are going to die at the hands of the Antichrist. Now, I don't know if you can fathom the, that number, but there will be those who will try to help the Jews. And they will be blessed, those nations. It's called the judgment of the nations. How or what or where exactly, what, what, I don't know. But nations will be judged. Is it just the leaders? It's those who gave the order? We'll see. Because we're watching it from the mezzanine, baby. We're not, we're not down here at this time. You with me so far, guys? All right. Um, I, in Revelations chapter 12, just to support that, there's, we read of a, a severe anti-Semitism, the Antichrist, um, just pouring out wrath upon them. And it says some of these nations will go in verse 46. Some of these will go into, uh, away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. He will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Did you know, um, you, know you know, I really want to explain this thoroughly. Um, you know what really is judged? Well, where maybe judgment begins, but eternal, eternity is judged. Death and hell will be thrown in to the lake of fire. That's eternal. You know, there are those that try to teach, it's called um, soul annihilation. The JWs believe that. They believe that if you're not part of the kingdom hall, that when you're judged, you're just annihilated and you cease to exist. The Bible doesn't teach anything about um, soul uh, annihilation. What it teaches, though, is everything that's eternal has to go to one uh, place or another. That there will be a destiny for the eternal. Now, where this applies to you and I is we are eternal. See, the animal world is not eternal. My little bucky next door, my little piranha with legs. <laughs> He's going to get me sued one day, I know. But anyway. Now, Irma will disagree. But when that poochie gives up the soul, he, he just doesn't exist. Now, I know a lot of you love, love, uh, animal lovers are weeping inside. But their body, soul. But when God created you and me and created the angels, he created us to be eternal. That's why we're triune. We believe we're made body, soul, and spirit. Animals don't have a spirit. Well, Mayan does. Okay. If you think so. Well, someone gave me this uh, article the other day about <laughs> this, uh, this dog that got, gets depressed. And uh, 
It says, see, he has a spirit. Well, Bucky gets depressed. Every time Irm leaves, the poor thing won't even eat. It's just your psyche makeup. I'm not saying animals that don't have um, a psyche. They, there's Some dogs show excitement. Some dogs show anger. Some animals do this or that. But they're not spirit. They're not eternal. You are. Angels are. There's no annihilation. So therefore, if they're God-rejecting, they have to go somewhere. So when God created hell, Gehenna, Lake of Fire, he created it for the devil and his angels because he knew that they could never be annihilated. They had to go somewhere. Same with the spirit of man. They have to go somewhere. So therefore, if they choose to reject God's love, reject his, his gift, then they follow the enemy, Satan, the devil, into that place that destiny called the lake of fire. You see, gang, there's going to be a lot of people that go there. Not you and I. If you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then this is not a place for you to even think about other than maybe a relative, an aunt, an uncle, or a loved one might go to. But for you, you are his bride. You're not the bridesmaids. You are his sheep. You are his beloved. You are the one that's sealed to the day of redemption. And when that day of redemption comes to the end, then we're ushered into the eternal to hear what? Ha oh, well done. Thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. I, I hope you hear me today, gang. Listen, Jesus, even when he was warning in Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, he says, enter in or enter by the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there's many that's on that road. Many. You and I are on a narrow road and there's few that find it. Aren't you glad you found it, guys? Wait, come on, church, just wake up for a second. I know we're all messed up with the time thing. We're going to heaven one day. And we don't have to worry about hell. And we're going to see the Lord and we're going to hear those words. And if you've got one talent and you've used it to invest in the kingdom, you're not going to hear anything different than what I'm going to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or the guy that might have had 20 talents. He's just not mentioned in the parable. He's only going to hear what you heard with one. Well done. Man, I invested one into your life. You gave me two, man. Come on in. Just make sure you're investing. And just remember, there is a judgment coming. And that's the urgency, right? Of why we witness. Why I did an altar call last week. You realize nine people, nine folks between both services came. First time except Jesus as their Lord and Savior. I was blown away. I was sitting here teaching. And the Lord kept saying to me, it's today. And I'm going, no, today. I'm not an evangelist. I'm not even sure if I know what I'm doing half the time. You know. All I can tell you is God loves you so much. He gave 100% for you. And all he wants is for you just to make a confession of faith. That's it.
so he can tell you, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, in closing, kind of a weird way to close this. There was a guy, a doctor actually, Dr. Rawlings. He was a cardiologist. He wrote a book, believe it or not. It was called Beyond Death's Door. I just took an excerpt out of it. and I just want to read it to you. And it goes like this. He says, I am thoroughly convinced that there is life after death. And that there are at least as many going to hell as to heaven. The turning point in my own concepts occurred when a patient experienced cardiac arrest. And he dropped dead right in my office. Of course, that alone didn't change my thinking. But the fact that this 48-year-old was screaming, I am in hell, uh, keep me out of hell, each time he responded to resuscitation efforts did cause some, um, some concerns. About 50% of the revived people or persons told of having gone to a place of great darkness, filled with grotesque, uh, grotesque moaning and, and withering bodies, crying out to be rescued from the place with overwhelming feelings of ear and nightmarish terrors. Why these, uh, why these not reported? Because are people too embarrassed to admit them? Doctors too embarrassed to make inquiry into such matters? But nobody can afford to ignore these reports. I am convinced that there is a hell... And that we must conduct ourselves in such a way to avoid being sent there at all cost. There is one. But probably don't like to talk about it all that much. Or even to study it. That's not one of my favorite subjects. But I'm telling you, gang. Just as, if the, just as there's a heaven and glory beyond, there is a hell. The godless Satan and the devil and his angels... That's their final, final destiny. So, with that upbeat news, let's stand, please. You know, last week when um, the first service and that... Uh, request for people to come forward I literally had to look at the people that raised their hands and come on come on down you know you know and to give them the courage to come down you know and I get that I really do it does take courage sometimes to you know yeah you're right Harry I am a sinner and I am without God and, and I'm not sure where I would go if I were to die today it's not a it's not a scare tactic it's truth do you know 100% where you would go? See, I have no doubts. Oh, come on, Harry. You, you don't have any doubts? Yeah, well, I do. I have doubts sometimes if I'm investing my gifts the way he wants me to. I have doubts sometimes of a calling. I have sometimes doubt that he really loves me. You know, But I have never once... After God revealed to me what his blood does, I have never once doubted my salvation. I am, I used to live in the mountains of the Smoky Mountains, and I'd hear these southern Christians, I am saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost. (laughs) And I know that. Many of you still. 
But I'm learning as time goes on. People start to go to church and they go, they like the music, they like the teaching, they like the Bible. But when you challenge them about their salvation, big old question mark comes up. And you don't have to have a question mark. The Bible says, whosoever will. You just call upon the name of the Lord. Thou shalt be saved. So when we're singing this song, and if you want Jesus, I just want you to raise your hand. Just raise it up while we're singing and put it right back down. You would do that for me? And let me see it just so I can pray with you today. And listen, if you were here last week and you did that and I didn't get your name, I need to see you after the service, man. I was able to get everybody's name the first service, or second service, not the first. We're going to have a Bible study, just us. And... Uh, in the weeks to come and learn about Jesus together.